All right. Welcome to the CXM Experience. I am, as always, Grad Khan, your host, and I am the CXO, Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler. Greatest job in the universe. Um, had a fantastic day today and just a, an amazing day of talking to these incredible global companies who are all looking to transform their customer experiences and think about new ways of engaging with people. It's it's really an amazing time we live in right now, and it's exciting to be at the forefront of a lot of this change. So today's show, it's Friday, so today's show is a bit of a potpourri. I'm going to do some corrections from two previous shows. I've gotten some quotation marks feedback on some of the things I said, so I'm going to delve into that for a few minutes. I'm also going to note that today is Nicholas Copernicus's birthday. And if you follow me on the Copernican Shift, my blog, you'll know that uh, Copernicus is uh, an important figure in my life. And um, I'll talk a little bit about the Copernican Shift and a little bit about Copernicus just for a minute. Today uh, also marks the first full day for perseverance on Mars. Very exciting. And you could argue that Copernicus and the work that he did directly led to the landing of this incredible rover on Mars. So uh, amazing day that way. And then we're going to spend a few minutes on Mass 1 to 1. We haven't talked about Mass 1 to 1 for a little while, so I want to delve back into that, spend a bit of time on the Mass 1 to 1 revolution, what's happening there, and sort of what to sort of look for there. Uh, and that should all take us about 10 minutes, and we'll uh, get on with our weekend. So Corrections. Incorrectly um, used uh, the wrong. I used the wrong word for grandmother in Polish. So I said babushka. Apparently, that's completely wrong. Embarrassingly wrong, uh, in fact. And it's really uh, babsia, which is why I shortened it as a child to Bobby. So Bobby was what I called my grandmother, but babsia is the actual expression. So uh, for everyone spotting that out there, thank you. I won't make that mistake again, and uh, appreciate the correction. Also, uh, if you recall the potato salad episode, which bizarrely is turning into one of our most downloaded episodes. Uh, so we're going to be going back to potato salad. Actually, we're going to we're going to do a sort of loving uh, photo essay of how to make it. And we're going to kind of delve into the recipe, getting a lot of requests for that. Um, potato salad seems to be a big motivator right now. Uh, clearly, people are spending too much time in, inside. So I think potato salad, maybe, maybe it represents picnics and freedom or something like that. So anyway, it's like rapidly turning into our most downloaded episode. And I did get some feedback. I, I made a disparaging comment about the Miracle Whip in my mom's recipe, um, you know, questioning whether Miracle Whip is really mayonnaise. Uh, because, you know, with the word miracle in it, how could it not be real, right? But apparently, um, I need to learn to love Miracle Whip. Uh, it's got a lighter taste which enhances the flavor of the salad and doesn't make it too cloying, which I had not really thought of that, you know, plus all the chemicals. So, you know, you don't have to worry about putting any preservatives in. So, um, but the chemicals plus the taste, it's a great combo. And I'm going to potentially try Miracle Whip one day when I run out of mayonnaise. Last thing, and this is a kind of a little bit of a correction on the recipe. So uh, as I, as you recall, um, if you recall, you may want to go back and listen to this episode because it's very highly engaged, but we used hydroponic lettuce. Uh, and, you know, if you recall, there's a big snowstorm and my, my dad couldn't get out there. And so he had to use the hydroponic lettuce and it was like, you know, tears running down his cheeks because it was this last leaves of hydroponic lettuce. Um, the recipe normally calls for um, iceberg, iceberg lettuce. 
Well, apparently the iceberg lettuce is not an accident. Um, the hydroponic leaf lettuce was too limp. And in fact, the crisper iceberg lettuce is actually super duper important. So the type of lettuce you use is critical. So here's a public service warning. Don't use hydroponic lettuce in your potato salad. Use iceberg lettuce in your potato salad. And we more on that when we delve into the recipe um, in the next week or two. All right. So um, a few more corrections. Almost done here. So apparently I've been using the word cow uh, to talk about um, beef and cattle and um, all sorts of other other things, right? Uh, so a hamburger, like all these other different words we have for it. And um, apparently um, uh, meat counter beef is made from steers and heifers and steers are castrated and heifers are female cattle that have never given birth. So that's kind of apparently how meat comes to us. And there's like, and like there's cattle and cows. And, and so I'm just going to like boil this down. I'm going to keep saying cow. Uh, so, so the people who don't like that I'm saying cow, you're just going to have to like, you know, roll with it a little bit um, for a couple of reasons. One is I do find it quite interesting that, you know, as an animal becomes more likable and has more personality, we tend to come up with other names for it than what the name of what it really is. Right. And so we call you know, beef, mutton, mutton's my favorite. You know, what happened to lambikins? You're eating it. I thought I was eating mutton. No, you're eating lambikins. Okay. Like there's all these like, really other words we come up with stuff. Although it's funny, not everything has an alternate word, right? Like if I'm ever you know, sort of reincarnated and I say, hey, what am I? And someone says, you're a chicken. I'm like, oh no, like chicken. There's no alternate word for chicken. It's you're a chicken and you're eating chicken and people like chicken. Uh, so uh, it's interesting how as the animals become less likable, the, we're more comfortable using their names. And as they become cuter, we come up with like alternate names for them. I do, I do love that. But I do actually like using the word cow because um, it's kind of what they are. And it's a um, very cute name. And I think we should be eating fewer cows. So, you know, I'm going to keep calling it a cow. And if that bothers people, then that's good. Um, another quick little ad, uh, high heat oil, grapeseed oil, apparently another great alternative. I would not have even thought of that. I've never actually used grapeseed oil, but grapeseed oil has a very high burning point. So keep that in mind. And I think that is what we've got for today. So I'll probably have some more corrections on these corrections, but for now that sort of gets the ball rolling. Uh, so let's talk a bit about Copernicus. So Nicholas Copernicus uh, was actually born this day, but a little bit, uh, a little bit longer ago. He was born this day in 14... 73 in an area of Poland called Royal Prussia uh, near the city of Krakow, which is in lower, lower Poland or Southern Poland. And um, if you know much about Copernicus, you know, he was a polyglot and a polymath. He had a doctorate in canon law. He was a mathematician, an astronomer, a physician, a classic scholar, a translator, a governor, a diplomat, and an economist. Uh, and in 1517, uh, he derived a quantity theory of money, which is a key concept in economics. And uh, in 1519, he formulated the economic principle that's called Gresham's Law, which if you took Economics 101, he learned about Gresham's Law. But most importantly, he, just, he made the observation that the earth goes around the sun, the sun doesn't go around the earth. 
and this is a major event in the history of science. It triggered the Copernican revolution and it was a pioneering contribution to the scientific revolution that led to, you know, landing of a rover on Mars. And uh, I love Copernicus because you know, he didn't really invent anything per se in his Copernican theory. What he did is he matched observation to reality. And, you know, it looks quite frankly, like the sun goes around the earth. I mean, stand in a field, it kind of looks like that's what's happening. Uh, but he was able to see what the reality was. And by matching reality and perception and you know, fixing that, he was able to unlock a lot of innovation. And I think in a lot of companies today, we're stuck in these um, Ptolemaic models where we think things are working one way. And in particular, we think that our products are the center of the universe, um, not the customer. And, and when you make the customer the center of the universe, so you make that Copernican shift to put the customer at the center, things really start to change because you look at things from an experience standpoint. How is the customer experiencing my product, my company, um, my innovations? So, you know, good on you, Copernicus. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of where he came from. So he was actually the youngest of four children. And, you know, he was very much a religious family. His uh, sister, Barbara, became a Benedictine nun. By the way, Benedictine, uh, excellent liqueur and a key ingredient in Vieux Carres. And there's more of your carrés coming later. Um, very important part of my relationship history with my fiance. Uh, he was um, uh, born in a village in Silesia between Nysa and Prudnik. And in the 14th century, the family began moving to various other Silesian cities uh, in near the Polish capital of Krakow and to Turin. Uh, what I love about Copernicus is he was a real badass because when he published his theory of the universe and um, how the planets moved, he knew it was heresy. And so he had the book published essentially as he was dying. Legend has it that the first edition was put in his hands uh, as he passed. And he knew that, you know, he put the knowledge into the world, but he wouldn't live with the consequences. It did take several decades for it to become accepted, but, you know, he got it done. So let's talk about getting it done. I want to talk a little bit about Mass one-to-one. -one. I want to go back about a year and a half. It's a very long time ago. This is pre-COVID. Uh, this is CAN 2019. Um, we're, you know, in this beautiful, sunny south of France. And Mark Pritchard, chief brand officer at Procter & Gamble, uh, took the stage and uh, gave a great speech. One of the great speeches in marketing, I think. And as part of that speech, you have this great quote, which is, we're reinventing marketing as we know it. We're reinventing media from mass blast to mass one-on-one -on -one precision. And this is really the introduction of this concept of mass one-to-one. -one. Uh, and the idea of mass one-to-one, -one I think, is a pretty interesting one because you know, it really is an evolution of the communication that we've been doing over the last, say, 200 years. So go back, say, late 1800s, uh, kind of mid to late 1800s. Um, you've got the very first newspapers, 1843, the penny presses started appearing. Post-Civil War, newspapers exploded across the U.S. And um, you began to see advertising. But there was also a lot of door-to-door. -door. Uh, there were a lot of general stores. So advertising and marketing was very much a one-to-one -one relationship. It was either one-to-one -one because you were having a conversation with someone who was running a store, 
or a conversation with somebody who's at your door or a conversation with someone in the town square or in a, in, you know, in a cart or something like that. Or there was a direct marketing component where people were publishing and talking directly to consumers and with coupons and other things like that. There was a direct response model. So it was very much a one-to-one -one model. Uh, it had some element of mass because of newspapers, but a lot of marketing and advertising at the time was not mass. Right? It was very personal. Then true mass media was invented uh, in the 20th century. So you saw the rise of radio in the 1920s and beyond, and then the rise of television in the 1950s and beyond, and we had true mass media. What was interesting about radio and TV, though, was that they were fantastic for reaching large numbers of people very, very efficiently, but they lost all of the personal interaction. And so we had mass without the one-to-one. -one. Uh, we had mass to anonymous, right? And so a uh, lot of really amazing brands were created in that era. And because it was new and because there wasn't really a lot of alternatives, it was great. And so people sort of took it. Um, it was challenging in a way because brands would essentially tell people what they should think about them. And that's tricky because when you tell someone you're good looking or you tell someone you're smart or tell someone you're a nice person or tell someone you're funny, eh, people don't tend to believe that so much, right? Like, oh, I'll be the judge of that. But so brands had to figure out how to try to do some stimulus response. But in many cases, in most cases, a lot of brands just repeated what they wanted you to know about them over and over again. And then came the 21st century. So we see uh, Friendster come out in 2002, LinkedIn not long after that, you know, Facebook kind of came out in 2004, and then so the rise of all the, the social platforms. Very, very interesting because what we suddenly saw uh, was one-to-one -one communication again. And people now could talk to brands and brands could talk to people, um, but we still had mass. There are more than 4 billion people on social platforms today. So this combination of mass, which we created in the 20th century, and one-to-one, -one, which is, I think, a more human instinct. And the thing we would rather do, which is really more 19th century, has created a 21st century paradigm around mass one-to-one, -one, which is tremendously exciting. The, the challenge in mass one-to-one -one is, you know, how do you do that? We kind of knew how to execute uh, mass, you know, you make an ad, put it on a network or a channel and broadcast it. Uh, we were pretty good with one-to-one, -one. you know, get somebody to go and have a conversation with someone, but how do you do mass one-to-one? -one? And what I'm seeing is classically, a lot of people are still using the concepts of broadcast in this mass one-to-one -one universe, uh, which isn't surprising. We, you know, human beings typically will use the the thing that came before to create the thing that comes after, right? So we called cars horseless carriages when they came out. We didn't know how to describe them. Um, you know, their first computers were electronic typewriters. Like we, we constantly are thinking of the thing we have right now with some twist, you know, and there was a brief period of time, late nineties, early two thousands, where it was like blank on steroids, like over, it got ridiculous. Um, and then people started saying blank on heroin and then it kind of, they, people stopped saying that. But what we were seeing now is a lot of people are still very comfortable in the broadcast universe. People like that control over the message, um, but they know they need to have a one-to-one -one relationship. So how to do that? And a lot of brands are stuck and they're really struggling. Uh, and what I see the really good brands doing is they, they have a sort of a three part process. Um, one is discovery. So they, they discover 
the things that are being said about them and they use a listening maturity model. We'll talk about that later. Then they classify because they're going to pull in millions, sometimes billions, certainly hundreds of thousands of messages and conversations. So they need to classify those so they know how to respond to them and know what to do with them. And then finally, then they need to engage. But the engagement model isn't just a very small number of people in marketing. The engagement model has to be broad scale across a large number of people in the organization. L'Oreal is doing some really interesting work here. Lubomira Roche is like leading the charge on having everyone at L'Oreal respond to every comment about L'Oreal. Pretty amazing digital transformation. So mass one-to-one, we're gonna spend a lot more time talking about that over the next couple of weeks. What are the components of that system? How does that work? What does a mass one-to-one marketing platform look like? And how do you discover? How do you classify? And how do you engage? And how do you make that happen? Because done well and done in a compelling end-to-end way, you create an amazing customer experience. Because now everybody who's your customer can engage with you whenever they want about whatever they want to engage with you on. And that is true brand creation. And that is true customer experience. For the CXM Experience, I'm Grad Khan, and I'll see you next time.